This is Regenerative Skills, the podcast helping you to learn the skills and solutions to create an abundant and connected future. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. New Society Publishers has been a leader in sustainable publishing for over 40 years now. They're an activist, solutions-oriented publisher focused on bringing you tools for a world of change. They've now published over 600 books available both in print and ebooks, as well as an increasing library of audiobook selection as well. They care deeply about both what they publish and how they do business, and so the same thinker and doer approach permeates their in-house work and the books themselves. A certified B Corporation, they print on 100% post-consumer recycled paper, and they are carbon neutral, and they print only in North America, never offshore. And that's just the company themselves. Most importantly, they've got the best selection of books that you need to build your own regenerative ecological or community-based projects. You can check out their full list of titles now at newsociety.com. Hey everybody, and welcome back. Now, today I'm going to give you a window into the series of skill exchange calls that I host regularly for the members of the climate farming community. The community is open to any active farmer in Europe, and together we've co-created an online learning space for farmers to connect with one another, to share ideas and knowledge, and receive support from their peers. Now, this series of skill exchange calls is part of my ongoing effort to create a free library of farmers' presentations on tips and abilities that they've found success with throughout the diverse farming operations that are represented in our groups. In today's episode, we get to hear from Lorenzo Costa, who's been on this show once previously in an episode that I recorded on his farm in the Chianti region of Italy with Zach Weiss when I visited in November of last year. Lorenzo will offer a deep dive into some of the processes and the recipes that he's learned, applied, and found success with from Korean natural farming, or KNF. We start with an overview of what KNF is and how it began, before jumping into tutorials on how to make your own indigenous microorganisms, DIY fertilizers, and a lot more. Now this is a very technical presentation in which we'll talk you through each of the steps in how to make these garden amendment and enhancement products for yourself. And since I know that it can be tough to remember everything, much less take notes if you're doing something else while you're listening to this, Lorenzo was kind enough to send me his presentation with all of the pictures that he refers to so that you can reference it later when you're mixing all of this stuff up for yourself. So with that out of the way, I'll hand things over now to Lorenzo Costa. All right, so again, welcome everybody. Today we're going to have a bit of a presentation from Lorenzo Costa, who is farming on some pretty unique, steep, rocky land and a beautiful place in, in Chianti in the Tuscany region of Italy. I was lucky enough to visit his farm when I went over for a workshop with Zach Weiss and him. Uh, they were teaching water management and landscape water uh, retention features. Fantastic experience and getting to see his operation was a real eye-opener, especially because I also have a very rocky and sandy farm where I am as well. And he's going to talk today about a, a series of practices that were put together by Master Cho in Korea. And this has really become a movement that was brought over to the United States and around the rest of the world really in the last 10, 15 years is when I first started to hear about it. But basically it's a collection of practices and ancient knowledge from the Eastern Asian region. 
and collected from sources in Japan, China, Korea on how to basically create your own fertility and inputs on intensive farming operations and basically decouple yourself from having to buy them or source them from from industry. Now, I'm not sure exactly how Lorenzo would feel about that description of it. Hopefully, I'm not too far off, but I will let you take it away from here, my man, and we'll check back in uh, after your presentation for Q&A. Thanks, Oliver. Hi to all. Uh, hi, I'm Lorenzo. Yeah, I'm speaking from Italy, Chianti in Tuscany. And uh, so I don't have an agricultural background. I have a degree in contemporary history. And so, you know, I guess many of us come from this transitioning through different paths. I'm a trade unionist in university still, and I'm farming. It's five years now. <clears throat> so, yeah, I want to speak. I I'll just share my the video. Can you habilitate me on uh, on my profile where I don't have the video? So it's my laptop, Oliver. Yeah, you should be good now. Okay, so um, yeah, t today I want to speak to you about Korean natural farming. It's going to be really a sort of brief introduction because we don't have so much time. We we have made up a sort of curriculum which would be a course of four days. And um, I'll just give you some, some insight on especially two recipes, which I think are the base starting point that we can have on KNF. And um, a few things have to be said. Uh, I'm going to speak about Korean natural farming. Usually, let's say often, we usually use two different practices, which are KNF and Jadam. So KNF is from, was started from Master Cho which is Chohan Kyu, and uh, Jadam was started from his son, young Sancho. As sometimes happens, parents and, and children argue at a certain point in life. They actually argued about inputs in the recipes about KNF. They, I'm simplifying it, but I, maybe there was something more about that. But the real big discussion between father and son was on sugar, using sugar to prepare the recipes of KNF. So young Sancho started Jadam and he actually lowered the cost of certain recipes, not using sugar anymore, but using potatoes and other stuff that is actually sugar, but in another form. Because in reality, the only thing in KNF that one has to buy as a material to prepare the recipes is just brown sugar. The rest is nearly all sourced on farm or locally. The big problem in, in taking KNF out of Korea, of Japan and uh, China, is that what is local for them isn't local for us. So we have to find other solutions, okay? So this said as a brief introduction, if maybe we want to one day, we can go on to Jadam, do a second, you know, sort of, of uh, have a second evening on this and go more in depth on other, on other recipes. So Master Cho started, was born in 1935. He's an agronomist in Korea. He uh, studied three years in Japan in the 1960s and actually studied uh, Japanese natural agriculture. When he came back from Japan, he unified the knowledge in fermentation that they have in Korea, especially to produce kimchi. Let's say that's a base you know, of many of the fermentation they use in cooking, in, 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 for cooking food. And he put it together with uh, agricultural um, with working with fertility on soil 
and working with the fertility and the microorganisms and the microbes of the, of the local ecosystem. So he actually came back and unified, as Oliver said, you know, traditional knowledge from Japan, China, and Korea. Uh, one book that I would suggest if someone is interested to understand the background is reading King's book, which is Farmers of 40 Centuries, which is the recollection of a travel that mm, this researcher did in the beginning of the, of the 20th century for a few years between Japan, Korea, and China. And uh, I mean, if we look at traditional agriculture in those countries, uh, they ferment, they compost everything from uh, uh, their own excreta to the ones of animals. They ferment plants. They have all these recipes and it's an incredible, you know, uh, knowledge they have. I mean, as King says in Farmers of Forty Centuries, they've farmed for millennia in the same place in a very small space with very little uh, agricultural land and with a big population. So they've learned actually to circulate and uh, to keep agriculture related to natural cycles, you know, of um, circulation of material, continuous transformation. Now let's not think about China maybe today uh, as it is, you know, but I mean, there, there's a tradition there that is incredible, you know, on really keeping natural cycles active. So KNF in, in as a, is an organic practice that works with indigenous microorganisms to keep it really simple. And it works with plant material to enhance soil fertility. Uh, as I said, the only thing we would really uh, source from outside is sugar. Because you can actually do then uh, rice vinegar by yourself on farm. We may not have rice to do rice vinegar. We have done actually vinegar on my farm with many different things, even, you know, ruined bananas with potatoes, with anything. We've been trying to do vinegar with every sort of material. So where does the context and history of this come out? It comes out in the 1960s, 70s with the Green Revolution. Master Cho had clear the fact that the Green Revolution was just a way to get farmers to use high inputs and increase farming costs. And this was his idea when he started, you know, putting together all the recipes. He said, okay, the Green Revolution may even have higher yields. That was his idea in the 1970s, 1980s. But the truth is that the costs are going higher. So the farmers are just, you know, actually um, starting to get their farms that are getting into high debt. So the idea was to work with low external inputs and use mostly farm products. And this is how they started to build up the knowledge. The idea of farming at the base of KNF is... Know the role of every element of your ecosystem. Uh, on this master choice, very clear. He says from a plant, from a tree, from an animal, even the farmer, everyone has a role in the ecosystem. And you have to actually follow uh, your role, your script, if you want. You know, you have to really be part of the ecosystem. And this is always, I think, a vision that we probably in, um, in Asia is more related and even to a philosophical, spiritual vision they have, perspective, I mean, of the real knowledge that is still quite, you know, uh, present today, which is the connection with nature in, in, in which our species are not separated from nature, is not separated from an ecosystem. So um, the second thing is use local materials. 
and work thinking of the natural cycles of nature. So uh, the recipes I will speak about, they're related to the seasonality. They change with the seasons. Every, every season we can have different materials we can use to you know, uh, prepare the recipe. And actually, when we go and collect and harvest indigenous microorganisms, which will be the first recipe we will see next, uh, we want to harvest indigenous microorganisms in different seasons because we have different populations of microorganisms, of microbes, algae, fungi, bacteria in the soil, and they change with the season. So we want to have certain microorganisms that we can use in certain moments of the year. So we actually try to collect and harvest uh, microorganisms in different moments of the year. And um, KNF emphasizes the roles of microorganisms and enzymes in farming to promote microbial ecologies in the soil and on the plant. And um, this is something we have experienced. We are now after our starting our fifth year that we are applying KNF. And uh, we started out in a condition which was 8.1 pH, uh, 1.2 of organic matter on our soil, really high calcium. We have active calcium, which is just off the charts. I mean, how high it is. And uh, we have doubled the calcium you would get in a soil analysis lab result. Uh, when you have the highest level of calcium you can have, you know, which is very rich soil in calcium, we have doubled that, okay? So we're really high in calcium. And um, we started off using KNF four years ago. This is our fifth year we're starting. And I must say, it's one thing I've always been teaching you when I teach permaculture courses. Uh, when people ask me what techniques to use on a farm, I always explain that I think you have to use one technique for at least five years. You, you won't see results if we're speaking about organic techniques before three, four years three years, let's say, and a drought year, a really hot year would just set you back nearly one year, you know, so it's it's really difficult to, to see a result in one, two years. So I always explain, I think it's best to keep to a technique and just that technique for four or five years and then evaluate, you know, if, if it has functioned in your climate, in your situation, if the if functions for the time and energy and the inputs you can put into it, and uh, then maybe try something else. But I, I've known people that have farming operations and they may do one year, they do biodynamic stuff, recipes, then they do KNF, then they do Sanjadam, then they just jump off to something else. And then they say, oh, that thing doesn't work. You know, and they ask you, how, much, how, how many times did you try? You know, oh, I just tried one season. How can you, how can you expect working with natural inputs that something just, you know, like this gives you the results? I mean, that's chemical, synthetic chemical, you know, fertilizers that just, you know, do like this. You put them in the soil and boom. But it's not something that is stable. Working with this sort of inputs, like KNF inputs, for me, is something that is building up the fertility. And one thing that has to be said about KNF is that you, it's not one thing, something you do once and then it's just done. You have to always be in the process. You have to always be part of the ecosystem, enhancing that fertility, working with the microorganisms. So we add uh, certain recipes every time we work a plot in the vegetable gardens or every season, let's say in spring on the fruit trees, we put certain you know, products every year. 
because you have to keep the, the populations of microorganisms uh, alive and healthy and reinforce them to reinforce the health of the plants. KNF rejects the use of industrial manufactured microbial inputs. This is something that is usually asked when we speak about KNF. People say, oh, can you do me that recipe and send it to me? Maybe locally, you know, we have a friend that is 40 kilometers from us. He calls me and says, can you, can you prepare this recipe for me? And I always explain, I can't. I can come and teach you how to prepare the recipe on your farm, but it's useless if I prepare it on my farm. Now, this is just a little bit different from the fact of using industrial manufactured microbes, but it's related to this. It's the fact that every population of microbes, of fungi, of, of bacteria is related to your soil type, to your climate, to your microclimate. And even if I prepare something on my farm, and maybe I'm 60, 70 kilometers from your farm, it would just be different populations different altitude, you know, it would just change. Even, even if, if your, your land is south facing or north facing, it really changes, okay, what populations you get. And this is even more if it, it, it's even, let's say, stronger, it's even heavier if we look at the fact of industrial manufactured microorganisms, you know. I mean, I buy sometimes mycorrhiza and obviously mycorrhiza are, they have all the range of mycorrhiza because they have to be sold everywhere in Italy or everywhere in Europe, you know. So they just have every single sort of population they can have of mycorrhiza because they have to deal with different soil types, different climates, different conditions. So they just give, you know, this high, this really big spectrum, you know, of, of microorganisms and say, oh, dang, you can just put this. The truth is you'll just be paying for something which is not made, not tailored for your soil for your climate um so this is why knf is very specific on this aspect and i must say i think it's really important it, it teaches us to know how micro how our populations change in the, the seasons notice and observe how they change and it teaches us to even you know recognize what results they give us when we use them in the soil so this is a fact. The industrial manufactured microbial inputs have highly diversified populations to cover diverse climates and soil types. So the first recipe is IMO, indigenous microorganisms. There are different recipes. Uh, I would say the best YouTube channel to follow to learn how to prepare all the KNF uh, recipes is Chris Trump's. Uh, Chris Trump, he's a farmer in Hawaii, and there's a big Korean community in Hawaii. As Oliver said, it, in, in the 1990s, 1996, 1998, uh, KNF started to be, you know, uh, practiced even in the US, and there was this big Korean community in Hawaii. And so it started to become common knowledge between uh, organic farmers in Hawaii. Uh, it is let's say KNF divides in two in the sense that on one side it is concentrated on plants and on the other side is it is concentrated on uh, animals, on the animal litter for the stables and all this. I don't have animals on my farm, so I've never got into, you know, all the side of, of treating, you know, using KNF for animals. <laughs> but 
I, I can even just, you know, try to scan a few books that I have, you know, that maybe have the chapters on that. If someone is really interested, you know, on this stuff, but I'm just going to be speak about the, the, let's say the youth on plants. So uh, IMO, uh, as I was saying, Chris Trump's um, YouTube channel is really good to watch. What I'm going to share this evening is a sort of simplified recipe, which works the same in the sense that when you do IMO, you try to capture indigenous microorganisms in the various, in the diverse phases, you would have to use um, OHN. OHN is uh, five um, medicinal herbs that come from um, medicinal herbs that come from Korean tradition. And they are made though with a, it's not a fermentation. I don't know the English word for this, but you have to um, treat them with alcohol. So it's first, we once prepared it and it was first done with beer. The plant was put into beer and then it was put into vodka. Okay, I don't know what name you use for that. It's not a fermentation. It's uh, in Italian, we would call it una macerazione. I don't know, Oliver, if you have the term, I don't know if you have understood what I mean. You know, you put the plant to... Aspiration or a tincture. The tincture is when you steep it in really high-grade alcohol. And maceration, okay, no, the... or you can steep maceration. them in similar to a tea. Yeah, Yeah, it's, it's sort of a maceration, okay? Because I think, the, I remember when we did it, I mean, I, I did it the first time in 2016, so then we didn't do it anymore because I had this friend, she taught us to, to do KNF, and she actually then... She gave us, she gifted us all these five liter, you know, jars of all this o OHN. And it's really cool because OHN is, is something that you use now. It's from 2016. I would use it diluted one to 2050, 2500. So it's just, you know, like three ml, three milliliters, you know, in, in I mean, it's really incredible. If you ever come to, to my farm in Tuscany, I, I will give you, you know, a hundred milliliter uh, little bottles of these five uh, herbs. So I'm not going to tell you that you what herbs you have to use, because I think we can just keep it simple, just to understand the process. Okay. So IMO is interesting because it's indigenous microorganisms. They have the ability to decompose uh, organic material you have in the soil. They have the ability to enhance the catalysis of chemical processes in the soil and revitalize the ecosystem and suppress uh, disease diseases in the soil and on plants it can use it can be used uh, to actually on the soil um, or as a foliar spray on plants on living plants okay and uh, IMO is really cool to do. It's just try and error, try and error, and you'll get to it, especially for the first phase. The second, the third, and the fourth are just really easy, okay? So collecting ammo. First, you have to choose a spot that has the climate of your land. Why am I saying this? Because I've had farms where they don't have trees. You usually choose a spot that is sort of woodland where you have leaf mold. And some people say, I don't have trees, I don't have leaf mold. Uh, I have collected IMO on farms where we just had three trees, you know, and you still have some leaf litter there and you can really try. And it's really easy to manage to find the right spot. But if you have to move off farm, you can even move maybe 100 to 100 meters from your farm, search for some trees, 
even a bamboo, you know, cluster of bamboo is perfect. You know, even of Arundo Donax would be perfect. Of the Kanya we were speaking the other day on the climate farmers community, you know. And uh, so we don't we don't really need, you know, the the idea is you need a forest with a leaf litter which is deep, you know, and very uh, high in organic matter and very uh, fertile. We can really have just a few trees. We choose a spot. It doesn't have to be under direct sunlight, okay? Uh, the idea, the best idea would be to harvest uh, indigenous microorganisms in two different spots on the same time. So you may have one spot which is south-facing, one spot which is north-facing. But if you want to keep it simple, just do one, one harvest of microorganisms just to get the feel of it, just to understand how to do it, you know. That will be perfect. So when we choose a spot, we are going to do the first phase, phase which is IMO1. We have to use a wooden box or a box made of bamboo. I'll show you in the photographs that I'm going to share next. I use one of those uh, bamboo things that they use to cook the ravioli, you know, the Chinese uh, stuffed pasta. And uh, I use that one. I just put it on the ground. Okay. And usually the, the, the floor of that, of that thing is just a little high up like this. And, and you just put it on the, on the leaf litter in the woodland under trees. So it just connects. It doesn't have to be stuffed down in the ground. Okay. You have to put it down on the ground. You cover it with plastic and you put then another box on top just to get animals not that don't go inside and just to keep it covered if it rains. Now, what you do is you fill this container. You have to fill it two-thirds with hard-boiled rice. I don't know if hard-boiled rice is a clear, uh, has a clear meaning for everyone. For me, in Italian, it wouldn't. So... The always a thing we, we have learned to do is you use some rice, it cooks in 12 minutes, you cook it for six minutes, okay? And you use that. You put two-thirds of, of your um, container filled with this white rice, uh, boiled half the time, the usual cooking time. And uh, what you do, you leave it in the woodland, under the trees or under the bamboo, Usually in spring and fall, it may take seven to 10 days to harvest the microorganisms. In summer, it's four to five days. Experience that I have directly, anyway, in spring and in fall, I start checking the rice after three days. Every morning, I check the rice after three days. So every morning, you'll go there and check the rice. I've never harvested uh, microorganisms in summer, in full summer, because full summer in my region is about 38 degrees Celsius, 40 degrees, and it's just too hot. I, I, I think it would just be too complicated, and it would risk to go off on the downside, you know. So you, you harvest uh, bad microorganisms, or it immediately just passes. I think in my region, maybe if you harvested microorganisms in summer, you could harvest them in maybe one day or two days, you know, if, if you actually have the populations because it's so hot, it's so, you know, um, there's no moisture. 
because the interesting thing is you have to choose a spot where there is a little bit of moisture. If the leaf litter is too dry, you can wet it with a, with a sprayer, you know, you can sort of with a, something that gets nearly mist, you know, you don't have to wet it with a, with a bucket of water. Okay, so you spray some water on top and um, you get it a bit moist and then you put your rice on top. So once you have harvested the microorganisms, you will see that one the one third of the container you didn't fill with rice will be completely filled with this sort of white cloud, you know, of microorganisms. You'll see it in the next, in the photo I'll, I'll share afterwards. And uh, it is okay if you get green and pink mold in the rice, it's still okay. If you get blue and red mold, that occurs when we get anaerobic microbes in the harvest. If the rice is completely full of red and blue mold, chuck it away and redo the harvest. If the white cloud you see on your rice is gray or black, you didn't check it too often, you left it there too much, or you harvested too quickly, so you have to chuck that away the same. You really have to get that right moment. We have arrived to moments where when we start seeing that we are, we are collecting the microorganisms, we start seeing this white cloud that is building up, we start checking even twice in a day, in the morning and in the afternoon, late afternoon. Because sometimes it's just a matter of hours, you know, and you just start seeing that this sort of cloud is becoming sort of grayish and it's just gone over, okay? So I would say really, if you, if it's the first time you do it, you want to try it, just start every three days. After three days, you just start every day. And if you see that it's starting to form, just check it twice a day, even three times a day. I mean, I think it's even cool because when you're doing it the first time, you're so sort of excited to see this thing that you just want to go there out and, you know, check it out every few hours. I don't know. I mean, me and Daniele, my, my co-worker, my partner and in crime on KNF, we were sort of like little kids, you know, looking at a little cloud growing. And um, so, yeah, this is before harvest. So you see, this is the rice and this is on the right. You see harvested IMO1. So you see, I don't have a, um, a photograph taken on the section, so you don't see it from on top, but you have this sort of white stuff, you know, this is all the mold that is coming out. And uh, I would say the light wasn't too good for this photograph, but we were nearly at the limit there. We, we actually had to do a photograph for a session me and Daniela had to do. We only had that IMO ready, so we, take the, we took the photograph. And... Uh, there are some grayish spots, especially on the high side of the photograph where there's the mold. And uh, I would keep it today, but, you know, uh, there are some grayish spots. It's starting to it's starting to become a bit too uh, old. Okay, so it's really a matter of a few hours. So you see, even on the sides where the mold has been co collected, it's just leaves. There's a live plant, herbaceous plants, you know, it's just leaves you get on the ground. And uh, the moisture they have, that's perfect to capture the IMO, okay? And, um, okay, we'll get back to these afterwards. Okay, once we have got IMO1, which is done with the rice, we go on to IMO2. Now, IMO2 is really, is really easy because it's just mixing IMO1 
with brown sugar in a ratio one to one based on the weight. You weigh the rice once you've harvested all the microorganisms. So not the rice you put in at the beginning, the rice that has harvested the microorganisms. You take that and you just put the same amount in weight of brown sugar. You mix it and you let it rest. And if you do that, um, you can keep the IMO, the microorganisms for about one year in stasis and uh, use them when you need them, okay? Uh, if you see bubbles forming in the IMO2, it will become, uh, let's say, so IMO1, when it's mixed with sugar, it will, in a week's time, it will become all brown. Seems like if it's molasses, okay? And if you see bubbles, the IMO is losing effectiveness. So or it has to be used or you have to redo it. But at that point, I would just use it. And uh, you can keep it for one year. IMO2 is just a, a phase we use then to do IMO3. There is a recipe to do liquid IMO2, which is like compost tea. Okay. So you put uh, IMO2 in a cloth bag in a 200 liter container full, full of water, filled with water. And you put um, the aeration pump of a fish tank. Okay. Um, once you see the bubbles in 24 hours, you can just use it. I've never really been too passionate about doing that with IMO2. I mean, I'll, I'll just explain later. We'll do. We'll see the second recipe, which is uh, green grass liquid fertilizer. I prefer to use maybe that as a fertilizer because you would use IMO2 in that case on plants as a foliar spray. Uh, it's perfectly okay, but you can do that even with IMO4. So usually you do it with IMO4, which is it's more stable. Okay, so IMO2 mostly is just used then to do IMO3, which is you mix IMO2 with ripe rice bran. Same, um, not same amount, sorry. Uh, rice bran. We use wheat bran. I don't know if you call it bran, the one of the wheat. You know the, the husks? Okay, yeah, wheat bran. Because we don't have rice. So you see, you have to always change a bit the recipes because you have to even look at what material, what local materials you actually have on your farm or locally. Luckily, we have a, a mill, which is half an hour drive from us. And they just chuck away the wheat bran, you know, they just throw it away. So they're really happy to just, you know, give it for free. After they started understanding that we were asking for 300 kilos every two months, they, they told us, well, maybe you could give us 15 euros every time you come because they started understanding that it was something that actually maybe we needed it for something, you know, it wasn't really that it was just, you know, nothing. So, but I mean, it's okay even to pay just 10 euros, 15 euros. Um, usually I'm speaking about, we do batches of 150, 200 kilos of, of wheat bran, okay? And uh, we usually do, uh, IMO2 is mixed with water to a ratio of 1 to 500 or 1 to 1,000. And um, if I'm not mistaken, we usually were doing 30 liters with 30, 40 grams of IMO2. You, you turn it around with a stick, so you get this molasses, really thick thing. You put it into the water, and then you turn it around. And uh, the moisture, when you 
put the IMO2, which is mixed with water, on the wheat bran, the moisture has to be about 65 to 70%, which is a usual thing that when we, you know, you squeeze it in your hand and you just get a little drop out of it, okay? It doesn't have to be squishy. It has to be quite dry. Um, you can do it outside. We do it under trees in springtime. But you have to cover it with a plastic, uh, you know, cover if it rains. We actually built a greenhouse just to do Korean recipes. So we wanted a, a dry place. We wanted even some, uh, you know, wanted even the right temperature because maybe in winter or in fall or even uh, early spring, you get temperatures. Maybe that you have a late frost and it just slows everything down. So we just wanted something that was a bit easier to deal with. So we just had this, we have this small greenhouse, you know, we use it on the ground. We do IMO3. Now, the, the cool thing is that you, you prepare IMO3 with the wheat bran directly on the ground. And what happens is that actually the ground starts to get inoculated with microorganisms. It's really cool because you see how you'll see the photograph. There's all these microorganisms actually on the ground that are sort of, you know, starting to inoculate the ground. So it's really, it's really interesting. I mean, if you have the right temperatures, you could actually prepare, you'll see IMO4, how it's done, IMO4 directly where you're going to grow stuff, you know. So you maximize the fact of then getting these populations to, to grow. So IMO3 is just um, another phase that is just to bring us to IMO4, okay? Uh, because you just use the wheat bran and uh, you just, once you have the IMO3, you get into doing the IMO4. IMO4, you mix IMO3 with your soil, the soil where you will grow plants, where you will uh, transplant trees, and the ratio is one to one. So if you do 150, uh, this one is not in weight, it's in volume. So if you have a mound, which is made of 150 kilos of wheat bran, you get the same mound of, of soil from your land, you mix them. So it's ratio one to one, okay? It's not based on weight, it's based on the volume. Um, so if you remember, IMO2 was based on weight, this is based on volume. So you mix them and you have to get the right moisture. If you need a little bit more moisture, you can, Mix a bit of water with IMO2 again, you know, and just remix that water into IMO3 with the soil to do IMO4, okay? So what will happen, and this is really cool, is that wheat bran doesn't have any uh, structure, just falls out of your hands, okay? Like rice bran. Like rice bran. Once you've done IMO3, it becomes solid, okay? It stays up like a piece, like a brick. When you mix it with the soil, after a week, you'll get IMO4 and it will just be rock solid if you want. You just have to break it down. You're going to have to make it dry at that point. And that's really cool because IMO4 can actually hold for one year, even one year and a half. We've got a one year and a half IMO4. I keep on, you know, just powdering it on, on the beds in my vegetable garden and it still works really fine. If I, if I cover soil, I maybe cut uh, residue you know, of, of a harvest of plants in my vegetable gardens. I cover it with the tarp on top. I just put IMO4 on the, all the cuttings I've done on the soil and I just cover it. 
and it still works fine after two years. You know, it's really incredible. So once you have the IMR4 batch that is ready, um, you can just let it dry and you can store it in a box, no problem. It usually takes in spring one week for every phase. IMO2, you have to make it rest in the sugar for one week at least, okay? And then it can last one year. Once you start doing IMO3, usually in one week, it's ready. What tells you when it's ready is when you see that the whole mound is covered in uh, white, you know, say sort of mold, um, actinomychetes, you know, the white stuff you get. And um, that tells you it's ready. The other thing is the temperature. When the temperature starts to go to become, it starts to cool down, okay? It's starting to finish its uh, phase of, of growth of the population of microbes. Temperature is important because we don't want to go over 55 degrees Celsius, okay? Because it starts to get too hot. If that happens, you just cool it down, turning the mound around. Even when you do IMO3 or even when you do IMO4, you just turn the, the mound around and you reform the mound. You have to make it sort of, you know, roundish like this. You'll see in the photograph we were seeing before. And um, you can keep it covered. We usually cover it with paper, paper bags, you know, from for seeds or that stuff. And if you're outside, you put then a plastic, you know, tarp on top. So you want to keep the humidity. But if it becomes too hot, you have to turn it around. When you see the temperature starts to cool down, it's ready. But what tells you really that it's ready is when you see that the whole mound is covered in, in uh, microorganisms. So I'll just go back to these photos. So you see here, on the right side, I'm holding the wheat bran in my hand, okay? You see, it's just solid, just stays in your hand. It really, it's really cool. I mean, you know, it's just, it's completely covered in microorganisms, you know? It's inoculated completely. And you see on the on the left, we have that thermometer. It's the same one you would use for compost. And you start to see all the white stuff, you know, on the mound. You see the microorganisms are all on the sides, at the base of the mound, you know. They're starting to build up. This is IMO4 in the making. So there's soil, there's pieces of, you know, uh, organic matter. We just don't look too much. We don't sieve the soil. You don't have to really get, you know, soil cleaned up. You just do what you get the mound up. And you mix it and you see how the all the the microorganisms the, the populations are growing on on the sides and they're building up okay once the whole mound is covered it's ready it's really cool i love doing imo it's just sort of cool because i mean and and kids like it too because they see all how it grows you know and how it transforms and once you've done this uh we can use it scattered on the ground okay, on the field, it would be 150 kilos for a hectare. And um, you just scatter the powder on the ground, or you can do liquid um, IMO4, which would be a hemp cloth bag, you it's one to 500, one to 1000. So for 1000 liters, we would use two kilos of IMO4. And you would use a fish, um, fish tank pump, you know, and a uh, have oxygen for 24 hours when you see all the bubbles that start to form 
If you want to put some sugar, some molasses inside, like if you're doing compost tea, you know, you can do that. And then you use it as a liquid IMO. You can use it as a foliar spray, even on fruit trees, on trees, actually, not only on vegetable gardens, you can use it on vegetables, annual, perennial plants. And it's really cool. Uh, from what I know, but as I said, I've never done it. Uh, liquid IMO4 is used even in stables for animals to water their litter. So you, you damp their litter, you moisten their litter with the IMO4. It's a cool possibility. I've never checked into that one. And um, so this is IMO. Let's get on to GGLF. Okay, so green grass liquid fertilizer. It's my second love, green grass liquid fertilizer. You can use it in many ways. Recipe that we do with uh, wild herbs that we harvest from uh, our land substantially. Uh, we usually prepare GGLF in uh, spring. And uh, we prepare it in spring and we use it because it's an incredible fertilizer and uh, plant um, health enhancer. And we usually use it after transplants in the vegetable garden. So once we transplant uh, all the summer plants in the vegetable garden, we usually do a treatment with GGLF. Um, we actually use it in fertile irrigation. So we don't do, do as a as a foiler spray. So GGLF is the extracted and solubilized essence, nutrients, and chlorophylls from plants. The recipe is a 200 liter container. We would use IMO4, 500 grams in summer and one kilo in winter. You get plants that fill two thirds of the container and you cut them sort of quite, you know, not too small, maybe 10, 20, 10, 15 centimeters long, the stalks, the stems. And you harvest any wild plant you have on, on your land. Okay, anything. You don't look what you're harvesting. It can be any sort of plant you want to harvest. You just take it, okay? And um, you cut it up. Then you use... Uh, bird or bat droppings now we don't have bats around i don't know where to get bat droppings so we use bird droppings and don't we don't have chickens or guinea fowl so i usually harvest the pigeon droppings from my neighbor's house they're pigeons that live you know free we're in open uh, countryside so you know they have a very big territory they eat a lot of different things I like pigeon droppings more than chicken droppings because it's completely different in the nutrients you have in pigeon droppings, you know, because they eat uh, small rodents, they eat insects, they eat fruit, they eat uh, seeds. It's not like what we give to chickens, you know, it's very really different in the sort of uh, nutrients you get in the droppings. And uh, so we just harvest pigeon droppings. You can use what you want, uh, really, there's no problem. If it's something that is very rich in nitrogen, I would stay lower towards five kilos instead of 10 kilos, okay? But that's no problem. Then you use rice bran or wheat bran. It's another ingredient, which is one, one and a half kilos of wheat bran. And you fill the container with water. 
And uh, once the container, this is, you see how we cut the, the grass, it's really coarsely cut. We're starting to fill the container. And these are the materials we use. On the left, you see the birds, um, the pigeons droppings. On the, in the middle, there's the IMO4. And on the right, the photograph, it resembles the GGLF, which is ready. Now, GGLF is ready in five to seven days. It's a fermentation. And uh, the thing you will, you will understand it's ready when it stinks. It really stinks. So use gloves because otherwise your hands will stink for two weeks probably. The smell just doesn't go away. So one thing we do, we, we throw the GGLF directly in our tanks that we use for watering. But the same tank we use for watering, we have the tap that we use even to wash our hands. So we have to go directly to the well and farm because we can't use the, the water from our tanks for two weeks nearly, for 10 days at least, because it really stinks a lot. The cool thing about GGLF, it's just an incredible um, fertilizer and a health enhancer for plants because you have um, you extract the nutrients from all these wild plants. And I like to do GGLF in spring and then in summer. Because in summer, it's harder to find a lot of plants, a lot of diversity. But the plants you find are really, uh, you know, hardy plants that can resist a drought, have got all certain nutrients and all certain minerals in their, in their uh, stems, in their um, structure that are really cool and interesting to extract and then to give back to plants. Uh, GGLF can't be uh, kept too long. You have to use it quite quickly. I must say the truth. We've even kept it for two months and we just gave it to artichokes, you know, diluted. And uh, the artichokes sort of just changed their, they sort of became the double in, in, in their in how big the plant was in about 10 days, you know, it was really strong. So I guess we, it wasn't the best thing to do. I would never do it on, a, on an animal plant. I would not do it on lettuce. But if you have a tree, a herbaceous plant, a shrub, or even an artichoke, which for us in Italy is just a perennial, we keep it for 15 years, you know, the plant, so it wouldn't be no problem. You can just put GGLF on, even if it's all two months old, and it will just, you know, boom, really enhance the... Um, the health of the plant. Uh, I've just kept it simple to these two recipes. From here on, we would just get on to other stuff, which would be a bit more complicated and a bit more, you know, sort of uh, tricky. I think these are the easiest two recipes one can try and uh, useful for experimenting observing what comes out, you know, and you can't do no harm with this stuff, you know, in general, you can't do no harm with KNF products, but you know, uh, it's really cool just to start from these two. So I would just stop it here and we can start with the Q&A if there are some, Q, some uh, questions. Brilliant, Lorenzo. Thank you so much for taking the time to walk us through that. That was uh, very, very in-depth. I'm curious myself to know a little bit more about the before and after. Like you said at the beginning, it's necessary to stick with a practice for minimum three years, likely five, before you can determine whether it's really giving you the results that you want. What was it that you were looking out for? And 
what did you notice once you started getting comfortable and doing these in a way that you could see results? Uh, okay, so the first thing is that we started seeing results after one year, okay, but they're not stable results. So you, you say, okay, I've seen that result. It's interesting, you know, I start observing. Um, what we noticed was much more, there were many more fungi, uh, organic matter, even if you had, uh, you know, wood chips put around trees, if you put IMO4, if you treated all the wood chips with IMO4, uh, they just started really compost really quickly. And this really enhances the composting possibility of a lot of stuff. So sometimes what happens in my place when I put wood chips on the, on the fruit trees, uh, wood chips would just sit there even for two years, you know, because we didn't have anything in the soil that could actually decompose that stuff, you know. We didn't have uh, nitrogen. We didn't have the microorganisms. We didn't have the fungi, you know. And um, we just started to notice this. That's why we started doing KNF. And now, after one year, we would just notice that wood chips would really break down really quickly. Okay. And now you don't get that sort of cake of wood chips you would have under trees because it's too dry. You know, one thing you notice is that soil retains more moisture when you put IMO4 and then maybe you have a mulch on top. It's incredible. You see a lot of that white stuff from the Achinomichetes, you know, in the ground because they keep on growing in the ground when there's enough moisture. And uh, one thing we noticed is that using IMO4, you enhance the, um, the microbial life of your first centimeters of soil, and that attracts earthworms, okay? Because they have the right habitat. This is always an example I, I share. We had three earthworms per square meter four years ago. At the third year, we had 40 to 60 earthworms per square meter. So I don't know if it was the IMO4, it was KNF, but the only inputs we put in our, on our ground were some uh, uh, municipal compost, uh, KNF products, and biochar that we do on farm. You know, So, I mean, that was the only inputs we had. And we went from three earthworms to 40 to 60 per square meter. Obviously, speaking about when you start to, you know, pass the broad fork in spring, earthworms are their maximum, you know, uh, height in population. But that was a big difference. We would have had in spring three years before just three earthworms. So this is what we noticed. And that was already after two, three years. I mean, but what I'm saying is that I would keep it for five just to, because you have to learn how to do recipes. You have to learn how to, you know, manage the practices and the techniques. And to see the results and even just benefit from the results, you know, if you change immediately, you don't know how long those results would last, you know. Very cool. Does anyone else have a question? So, oh, yeah, I was wondering. So for the IMO4, you just keep it. I mean, is do you need to be careful how you keep it or it's just like it's just a block? You put it in some box or it's just just stable? you. You at that point, it's stable to mm -hmm. keep it. You let it dry. You let the mound dry. Then you can just break it up, sort of. And it's going to be because it, there's a soil at that point with your wheat bran. So it's sort of coarse, okay? You just break it up like if it was sort of powdered and you keep it in a box. We usually keep the box in the greenhouse, okay? So we're not too careful about. I mean, 
if you look at Chris Trump's videos, he has this cedar box with the lid on top like this and like that. I don't know. I mean, when I do IMO4, I usually use it in, in, in one year. So I don't keep it too much, you know, uh, aside. But you can keep it for maybe one year and a half, two years, as I said. But I would just, you know, keep it aside. Just check it. it the, the important thing is that you don't get moisture. Once you get it dry, it has okay. to keep dry. So, okay. Otherwise, you could get other microbes in, either that maybe anaerobic stuff that can come in and just makes it become wrong. I know just certainly the, the, the wheat bran, it's just the, the, the stuff that is when you make the flour, right? What is left, right? Just the small. Uh, yeah, it's a small to... or even when you thresh wheat. Okay. We have a thresh on farm. We even use our, because we do a small amount of wheat. We sometimes use our wheat, okay? When we thresh it, the first skin you get outside when you thresh wheat, you can even use that. Ah, okay. Okay. But I would say any sort of um, really easy to decompose material that may have even some sugars inside could be used, you know? So, but it has to be dry stuff. So it has to be brownish stuff, you know, carbon. Hmm. But I mean... Uh, anything you can have, uh, you can use. We've done it with, um, we've done IMO4 with uh, acorn um, husks, I recall the acorns, you know, the outside skin of the acorns. We've done it with chestnuts. We've done IMO4 with chestnuts. We've done IMO4 with our wheat. We've tried IMO4 with, uh, I think, nearly everything, you know, anything okay. you, would, you just want to do, just try it, you know. Okay, cool. Thanks. Yeah. I think Andy had written something on, on the uh, on the chat. Yeah, Andy asked uh, what water you use in the recipes and whether or not tap uh, water is okay. It's rainwater. Or or it's rainwater or it's water from our well. So we don't use uh tap water. If you have to use tap water, you would have to leave it for two to three days outside open and sort of stir it to get all the chlorine out. But otherwise, you can just put a container outside in the rain and get the rainwater, you know? I mean, and you just let it sit there if you want. But I, I mean, that would be the perfect thing to use rainwater. Usually in KNF, they say to use rainwater. We've used often the well water, which comes from 65 meters underground. But I mean, that that's maybe only the only thing we have. So, Yeah, that's a good one to talk about, because especially in your case, Lorenzo, with all of the calcium, all of the lime that you have in your well water, that's often what they talk about as being one of the minerals that can really block the absorption or I guess the function of a lot of these ferments. So, yeah. I mean, you, you seem to be doing just fine, but if you do have a lot of minerals in your groundwater, that can be something that can limit the efficacy of these recipes. Yeah, that could be, I, I would suggest if one wants to try just to have a rain harvesting system even from a roof you know have a, have a tank and then use that water we have never noticed uh problems with our water okay we have never done uh we have never checked actually how much calcium there is the interesting thing would be to understand what sort of uh what calcium you actually have in your water you know in what in what you know uh mineral compost it is you know if it really creates problems or not uh, we certainly do have that problem. That That's true. But I just think even one thing, it's true if we were speaking about fermenting plants. So one thing that I think is about the microorganisms and the microbial population is related to that calcium level. So I think they, I, I, I mean, 
we're sort of you know capturing a population of guys and 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 gals you know that actually live in that soil so i think they're used to the calcium you know so i don't know i wouldn't see it so negatively but i i would check that out yeah, absolutely yeah that would be the maybe the thing that one should check out no that's a cool thing yeah it could definitely be adapted to your situation already and when you're talking about fermenting plants have you done any of the fermented plant juices or the yeah we've done the, the vinegar we've, extracts we've done the fpjs and the jls with so that's jadam and the fpj uh would have just been another let's say another section of this talk so we can maybe if, if we want to do another one maybe in two months time we can find another evening you know and do maybe fpjs and jlfs uh yeah yeah, FPJ is with sugar. We've done even the ones with uh, with vinegar. That's a bit more tricky because it's tricky the moment you harvest the plants. It has to be before sunbreak, before dawn. There has to be dew on the plants. It has to be in a certain moment of the growth of the plant. And uh, that's just something that I find interesting. But I've always seen the use of KNF as, you know, something that really has to help me out to find a solution for the soil fertility. Because there's all the other side of KNF and Jadam, which is on plant health, but even on uh, pesticides and, uh, and dealing with diseases. So if you, that, this is a bit the downside, of, of especially of Jadam. If you look at Jadam farms, they're not really what I would speak about in regenerative agriculture. I mean, they're just, you know, covered in plastic on the ground, really black plastic. It's not even, you know, uh, degradable. I mean, uh, mulch, you know, it's it's incredible. I mean, I, I sort of look at that and I think, wow, and that would be regenerative agriculture in Korea. And it's really, really incredible. And um, because then they, they keep the microbial life, you know, with all the inputs. So it's a bit, it's a bit tricky how, how they're dealing with that, you know, because they... they they speak about working with the ecosystem and then especially in Jadam farms, you see it's just, you know, all this plastic and because they keep the inputs underground. So they keep the microbial activity, you know, high up. I prefer, as you saw on my farm, Oliver, but I think many of our farms, you know, we prefer to work in a more sort of natural ecosystem. And this would just be something that would help us, you know, enhance the fertility and keep those populations, you know, high up. So I don't know. I mean, I was thinking how... I, I missed the wait. I yeah, Filippo asked here, how is the balance between bacteria and fungi in your IMO4? And do you use it in the vegetable beds as well, where maybe it's more important for the presence of bacteria? Uh, the balance is uh, really, I've never thought about that. I mean, I know I use it in vegetable gardens. I started doing IMO4 for the vegetable gardens, not for the fruit trees. Then, I, then since I had a lot of IMO4, just started, as I was saying on the wood chips, I started chucking it on, on the, under the fruit trees. Um, I've actually had a lot of much, many more fungi in my vegetable beds than before. And um, I'm quite happy because they are fungi that uh, decompose organic matter. Since we work a lot with mulches, especially in summer, we then put maybe IMO4 in autumn, you know, and they just, in, let's say August, start of September. 
And uh, you just start to get these populations of fungi, you know, on, on the ground that they just start to decompose, you know, all the organic matter you have on, on the on the beds. Um, you usually, I usually use IMO4 when I'm preparing the bed for the transplant. So I would, I would put IMO4 two to three weeks before transplanting, or I would use IMO4 after a bed has been used, and maybe I just seed some cover crops for the winter, or even I just leave it, you know, because I, I it's late, I can't get a cover crop in the ground. Put IMO4, you get all the debris on the ground, you know, you cover it with a tarp maybe for a month. And that just, you know, gets the, the, the fungi working. I've never actually had problems with fungi in my beds when I have even tomato plants in summer. I actually like it because even what, what I've always noticed is that the fungi, I get them when, when under the mulch there's the right moisture. And the right moisture I've, I've been seeing in, in, in these years, even with really hot years like last year, is related to the fact that we have a good microorganisms population in the ground. We have biochar, we use mulch, you know, and we're getting to that point where we have the correct balance between compost that we add, the biochar, and the microorganisms we have in the ground. So I wouldn't see fungi as a problem in my sense, in my idea for the vegetable gardens. It's actually something that if I if I see in the beginning of summer when when temperature starts to go up, still fungi, it means I've got enough moisture. So I'm really happy about that. I don't want it to dry up. Yeah, that makes sense. And fungi can definitely pair with plant roots and help extend their ability to to scavenge and find moisture too. In places like where you and I live, that's even more important oftentimes than nutrient availability. Um, yeah. I was also curious, what's the difference between KNF and JDAM? I have almost always used them pretty much interchangeably. They are interchangeable because, I mean, they, they, they come from the same idea. The difference mostly is the fact that JDAM doesn't use sugar. That's it, you know. I mean, if you think about, um, uh, what's the name of that? Uh, the one you do with potatoes and the leaf litter. And you keep it for two days. It's it's got a J in the middle. With Jadam always has J's. It's not. I always JLF. forget the acronyms. <laughs> yeah, I always forget. I've done too. that one though. Yeah. Uh, JMS. It's a JMS. Okay. Uh, JMS is is the recipe, which is the uh, contrary of IMO. Okay. Instead of using sugar, you get the leaf litter, and you get the potatoes in the water, and you make them ferment together okay and what does the, what is the the potatoes are the sugar okay so you get the microbial population up doing jms i just think that my opinion is that jms is too weak for me i really love imo i think it's much more concentrated it can last longer jms you do it you have to use it so i just I, i've tried both and uh, i just think that uh IMO is much better, more stable, it lasts longer, and you get more microbial activity, more population inside. But JMS, that's the difference substantially between Jadam and uh, uh, KNF. Uh, the other difference is uh, mostly that uh, Jadam has worked a lot on pesticides. So there's all uh, there's uh, there's a new book that has come out now is all on the pesticides that you can use to deal with diseases. 
I think Master Cho, the KNF, was more on sort of more sort of a natural vision of the farming, you know, uh, initiative. And uh, I just feel it's a, just a bit more natural. We do quite a lot of uh, fermented though, plants using even Jadam recipes. I mean, you know, they, they, they can actually be mixed with no problem. Because it's just, you know, two different ideas of father and son. They had the same vision. So, I mean, makes sense to use them interchangeable. Sure, that makes sense. Does anybody else have a question? Otherwise, I could go on. <laughs> I've got a few minutes. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, I'll give you another one. Um, so, you were talking about the permanence of this stuff and how you may get results pretty quickly when you do a first application. But you're looking to you know reestablish the health on a longer term have you witnessed that over the last handful of years that you've been doing this as microbial fungal even earthworm populations like you were talking about reestablish have you actually started to decrease your application of any of these uh, solutions or ferments yeah we have uh, decreased our use of imo uh, this year, because I've got a student, an intern that is coming for three months, so we have to do IMO with her. So she has to learn to do a bit of KNF stuff, and I'm looking forward to that because we didn't do K, we didn't do IMO last year. We jumped last year. I sort of missed that application. I missed that thing, but we haven't seen a big change in the populations really, because I think it's always the fact that you're not just doing, you're not just using IMO. You're working on, on having always inputs, you know, that maybe, I mean, when we harvest the lentils, the chickpeas, the wheat on farm, we just throw all the stems, you know, on, on the beds, or we always mulch. Now we are using uh, olive leaves as a mulch, okay? So I would really love to see now in spring, IMO4 under olive leaves on top and see the effect of that, just to study even this relationship between using olive leaf mulch, which I'm going to start to use much more every year now. But um, I don't think it's necessary to always, you know, use the same amount of inputs. But I think it just becomes part of your year seasonal routine, you know. I don't know, you just say, oh, I'm preparing a bed. As you like, it's still when you when you you get into summer and you say, "Oh, we have to mulch the beds," you know. I think it's just, "Oh, it's spring." Well, I may work a few beds, you know, to do some transplants. Let's just put some IMO four, you know. And it's it's really just something you do in the beginning. One thing that we do every time though is the GGLF, the green grass liquid fertilizer. That is something that we use specifically. We've seen the effect it has on plants, and especially um, expressly to, you know get over the transplant stress when you put all the plants down. Uh, when we, we transplant about 3,000 tomatoes, you know, 500 zucchini, peppers, and that stuff. And it's all nearly in, in a 20-day, you know, rotation. We just transplant them all. So once we've nearly finished, we just water all the plants with drip irrigation with the GGLF in our tanks. And uh, that we do every time we have a big season, you know, uh, rotation in the vegetable gardens because that really helps for the stress from transplanting so i think that's really cool you know for for the for the plants that really just boosts their their health up really quickly that's really nice that's cool that's really good to know that's one of the recipes i haven't tried so i'm definitely going to look into it as i get my garden started this year 
Well, look, I think that's a good spot to probably wrap it up at. I definitely yeah. want to see a follow-up to this presentation. This was really cool. And if there's any quick last questions here, otherwise I will say that not only do I want these calls to continue with Lorenzo, but I would love for any of you who are listening or who watch the recording of this to think about how you would like to share some of the techniques or knowledge or experience that has worked for you on your farm and add to this growing library of farmer-led presentations that we can all benefit from. So if even if it seems like something small, I would love to hear about this and, and help you develop it into a presentation that we can use to add to this knowledge library that we're building for farmers. So I'll leave it there and I will see the rest of you in the community and we can talk about this some more. Maybe Lorenzo, could you send me some of these pictures? Because I would love to kind of post these with the the recording as well when we get that up. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'll send you the pictures. I'll send you even if you want these um, slides. I'll just share a few things with you. Okay. Fantastic. Great. All right. Well, again, thank you all for coming. I'll see you on the next one. Take care. Have a good night. Bye. Thank you. Good night. Have a nice bye evening. Bye. 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 Thanks. Bye. Bye. Thanks once again to Lorenzo Costa. You can find links to his whole visual presentation as well as the links to his social media accounts in the show notes on the website at regenerativeskills.com. And if you'd like to join us for a live skill exchange call in the future and you're actively farming anywhere in Europe, you can sign up now for the Climate Farmers community on their website at climatefarmers.org. Once you're there, just select the drop-down menu bar where it says For Farmers and click on Join the Community. After filling out a short form, you'll be invited to our chat forums and you'll get access to all of our free support and resources for farmers. And I look forward to seeing you there. Now, before we wrap this up, just remember that these episodes are only the beginning of the learning resources, design and coaching services, in-person courses, and interactive community that are available through Regenerative Skills. The Discord server is our free community where you can connect with other like-minded listeners exchange ideas, stories, tips, and resources, as well as interact with me directly and quite a few former guests from this show. Our Instagram account, at regen underscore skills, is the best place to see the projects that me and the team are working on, both for clients and collaborators, as well as on our own properties. I'll also be announcing the certification courses, workshops, and gatherings that we've got coming up later this year. If you're interested in getting dedicated support for your own project, you can now schedule a free planning session with one of our team members through the request form on our website. You can also find all the links, show notes, and past resources there at regenerativeskills.com. We truly believe that no matter your experience, your knowledge, abilities, resources, or background, you can be a powerful force for regeneration on this planet, and we're here to help you find your path. So as always, remember to keep taking those little steps every day towards a regenerative future, and I'll be right by your side along the way.